Thank you, Tracy. Um, I want to, uh, it's always a joy when you get to introduce someone that you love and that you're close to, to other people that you love and you're close to. And you don't always get that opportunity to make that connection with different parts of your life. Your life. Well, I want, I want to welcome my dear friend Tom Paul uh, and have you get to know him and have him get to know you. Um, Tom and I met and became very close uh, at Dallas Seminary in 1971. Uh, we were in class together. If you think about it in the alphabetically, Paul Phillips, hmm, makes sense. So for four years, we had classes together. And, and by the way, uh, at, at that time, you'll, you'll notice that when, Paul comes, when Tom comes up here, he'll have on a coat and tie. Uh, we were required to wear coats and ties uh, in seminary. And so I went from a liberal university to wearing, and wearing cutoffs and T-shirts every day. Uh, to Dallas Seminary. Tom had a different mode of dress because he arrived uh, at Dallas Seminary two weeks after leaving Vietnam. If you think about that transition, as a a young first lieutenant or or captain at that time, I'm not sure which, uh, Tom served in Vietnam with the uh, 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 101st Airborne and stayed in the military, became a chaplain uh, in the reserves for 30 years. But uh, after seminary, uh, was uh, a uh, uh, church planter in French-speaking Canada and Quebec, which I, I've often thought was, was so funny. It was really funny because I remember, Tom, when we used to joke, hey, I can speak French, ho, 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 and then he did. <laughs> so I really hope you got better at it. Uh, for the last 22 years, Tom has been the pastor of Madison Baptist Church in uh, Montreal, and uh, uh, he is, was also the uh, chaplain of the Montreal Alouettes, the Canadian Football League uh, team, uh, and I've asked him to tell you his story and uh, uh, of God's faithfulness in his life, but I, I also want to mention that uh, uh, Part of his lovely family is here, uh, Julia and Ryan Crusack and their children, Zoe, Sylvia, and Caspian, the intrepid. So it's great to have you guys uh, here with us today, and it's wonderful to have my brother, my dear friend, Tom Paul, come and share God's word. I've been looking forward to this. Getting back at Gary. <laughs> uh, I was impressed when I read your bulletin uh, before coming down here and noticed the word trebuchet. Uh, so a little French uh, pumpkin, pumpkin launching device. I want to know more about that after the service. I do not wish to be the target. Uh, Gary and Betsy. Uh, became uh, close friends during seminary. In fact, uh, as, as I was in the last year of seminary, uh, Gary and I played flag football together, and um, I broke my leg and had a cast. It was an ankle break, but I had a cast up to here, and it was difficult for me. I couldn't drive. I couldn't get up the outside metal staircase to my apartment, and so uh, Gary and Betsy took me in, and uh, so I got to know them there. I, uh, they were newlyweds <laughs> and included me in their household out of pity and mercy and compassion. <laughs> and so I was, I was well cared for, and uh, that was a, a real blessing to me. I also uh, gave Gary uh, uh, the uh, thrill of his lifetime last year in The Blue Thing, a Miami blue uh, Porsche. My sons are automobile dealers. And uh, so we went screaming through the countryside around Calhoun, Georgia, a little white-knuckle driving. <laughs> he took it like a man. So, 
My life is an ordinary one, and I think through life, if you live long enough and if you desire to follow the Lord, you have pretty interesting experiences. And I think one of the best ways to evaluate where you are in life is to imagine yourself at the end of your life. What will you think as you look back? What do you think will be important to you at that time? Everybody has two guaranteed, one of two guaranteed destinations. And as Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, he talks about the Bema throne, the throne of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, he says, for we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. This is the place for believers. It is a place where we will be evaluated and the things in our life that build upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation, uh, things that are like gold, silver, precious stones, they will endure, the wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed. And so we want to be aware of what we're investing in as we live. And then the other place that those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior um, they will appear before the great white throne judgment and um, will be separated from him forever. So the first question is, how will you spend your story? How will you spend your story as you look back on your life? Um, I find myself sometimes um, when I'm driving, and inadvertently my speedometer seems to have gotten a little higher than the posted limit. And I notice that I am rehearsing what I call the but officer speech. How I will explain how this happened. And I, I have found other situations. If I'm in a grocery store and I see someone from the church and they look up and notice me there, they're wondering, was I doing something silly? And so there are times when we begin to wonder, how will I explain how others perceive me? And ultimately, the only evaluation that counts is how Jesus will view us at the end of our lives, how he will evaluate us. This is not about salvation for the believer. That's already guaranteed, and it's by grace. But it's how our lives were valuable in his sight. And... If I wanted to impress you that I had a, a difficult childhood, I could tell you that when I was growing up, we had to live with two other families in one house. But if I filled out that story, the house was very large in a very nice section, and each of the families had a different floor. If I wanted to impress you about my athletic accomplishments, I could tell you that I went under the scalpel of the famous Dr. F. Leon Ware, who was the orthopedic surgeon for the Dallas Cowboys. What I might be leaving out is it was flag football in seminary when I broke my ankle. Gary is a witness. And I, uh, as uh, living in Canada, one of the privileges I had uh, was to be the chaplain for 11 years for uh, the Mon Montreal Alouettes during a time, really, of football dominance. And that was a thrill. Uh, but as I spoke to those professional athletes, I began my speech by saying, um, when I talk about my athletic accomplishments, um, as memories fade and witnesses die, I become a better and better former athlete. But the reality is, uh, I loved football, but my high school only had 12 boys in our graduating class, so we couldn't have a football team. And one of the verses that touches me because I wasn't a starter, when I got in the games, I played hard, but I was a good teammate. And that really fits what Paul writes to the Corinthians and has been extremely useful to me. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, we are co-workers. 
and the word, our word synergy comes from the Greek word he uses. We are workers together. We are teammates. We are fellow workers. This has been extremely valuable to me um, in my ministry, in the military, um, in my family, to be a good teammate, to know how to be an encourager to others, to support others. In this context that Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 3, he says if what someone has done, has built, survives, he will receive a reward. So how will you spin your story? How will you view yourself at the end of time when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? So in thinking about telling my story, and by the way, I love to hear testimonies, but when Gary asked me to give my testimony, I had to think about it because I'm not used to doing that. I'm used to preaching the Word, as Gary is. And, but immediately after you told me that, while I told you I was still thinking about it, my life verse came to mind. I said, well, if I do this, I want to talk about my life verse, which is a prayer. Um, the Apostle Paul recorded 41 prayers in his epistles. If you want to read good books on that, you can read D.A. Carson or Charles Spurgeon. Um, two of them, the two that uh, were read this morning by Tracy, um, are, no, Tracy prayed. So anyway, those, the verses that you have in, on that green sheet, they're two of the 41 verses, and they are, have similar things. They're parallel. And so um, on, you have them one above the other, and then on the back of your sheet, you have two columns, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and then Colossians 1, and I've gone down from, from 9 to 14. And I've drawn some lines on the back of the sheet so you can see the relationship there. But this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, not just good enough, but best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a very complete verse. One phrase needs to the, leads to the next phrase and ultimately to our reason for being, which is uh, we are created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So it concludes to the glory and praise of God. We are to be loving, that love may abound still more and more, to deepen in knowledge. Now, if you look into the column on the right and you see Colossians, knowledge is, uh, is expanded to knowledge of God's will, what is his desire for us, and knowledge of God himself, to know him more and more profoundly and intimately as we go through our lives. Knowledge is never just to be the satisfaction of curiosity. Knowledge is to be translated into behavior. And so we think of the mind, our thoughts, and we think of the heart, our emotions. Both are important to us. And uh, our love for God is an, an emotional response to Him as we read Him, uh, read his, of His acts, his character, then our love for him grows. But our minds are a part of that to understand who he is as he is revealed in Scripture. Our desire is to resemble Jesus Christ, to become more and more like him in his character. How do we do this? How do we live a life that is pure and blameless? Well, in Paul's prayers, he tells us that we resemble Jesus Christ more and more as he fuels and fills us with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. He pours his character into us. And the result of this is that our lives are to the praise and glory of God. A.W. Tozer said, 
were we to extract from anyone a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. And what we think about God, we get from the Word of God. We see in other believers. We are to grow in the knowledge of God, as the prayer in Colossians says. The purpose of a life verse is to state spiritual priorities and to outline a legacy that one prays will be adopted by those who follow. So the mind, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of his will, and then the heart uh, to, to grow in terms of our love for the Lord. And Jesus said to the wise scribe, who had asked about the most important question, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That's the emotional part. And your soul with all of your mind, our thoughts, our intellect, and with all of our strength. When I was in college, uh, my professor, of, uh, we were, I was a business major. Uh, my grandfather and father were automobile dealers. And I, uh, my professor, uh, in two years of required religion courses, was the grandson of the well-known evangelical uh, scholar, author, um, G. Campbell Morgan. But my professor, Dr. Richard Lyon Morgan, was extremely liberal. He had rejected the teaching of his grandfather. And he was a bright man, and he had a three-piece suit, and he would strut, uh, fingering his Phi Beta Kappa key to remind us that he was smarter than we were. And he would go through all of the uh, theologians going back to the 1930s, uh, Bultmann, Bonhoeffer, Niebuhr, Nietzsche, Tillich, Fromm, Schweitzer, and then thrown into that we had the um, existentialists, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. And so we were going through this, like uh, Gary, a liberal school. And so this was different from the way I was brought up. I grew up in a Christian family. And uh, my family was, my parents were very patient when I would come home uh, for Thanksgiving. And uh, they just prayed for me, quietly, continually prayed for me. And... So I had put aside my Christianity. And then one night, uh, my third year, I got a knock on my door in the dormitory. It was a dean of students. He said, I have some bad news for you, Tom. Your roommate, Jim Duckworth, died this weekend. He was a fullback on our football team. He was putting a tractor on the, a flatbed down visiting his brother on his farm. The trucker flipped it, crushed him. He died right away. I went out to the football field, and it was raining, and I was crying, and the question that was just burning in my heart is, where is Jim now? I didn't know. I hadn't had a conversation with him about spiritual things. And I thought... That question, the matter of where we go eternally, either it is meaningless or it is the most important thing a person can think about. And I'd better think about it. I don't want my parents' faith because they believe it. I need to go back and re-examine Christianity. Is it true? Is it not? Either it gets everything from me or nothing. And so that began my search. But I didn't know where I could get answers. Certainly not my religion professor. And I knew some young men who had started going to Dallas Theological Seminary. They were a year or two older than I. And I would grab them during the summers when all of us were in Charleston. And... We'd walk down the beach one at a time, and I would ask him question after question after question, 
things that had come up during my religion classes. I wanted answers. I didn't know if there were answers, but they were thoughtful, careful, contemplative, and they always went to the Word of God. Their answers started to make sense and gave me hope. Maybe there really are answers that satisfy not only the intellect, but the heart as well. My emotions. Both have to be satisfied. As I was in my last year of seminary, I got a call from my father. Uh, He said, Tom, I know that you're a business major and that your intention is to come into business with me. He said, but I have an opportunity to sell Paul Motor Company. And I said, Dad, I know that Ford has been uh, putting pressure on you to always increase your, your sales and everything every year. I said, if you can sell it, go ahead and do so because... God may have other plans for me. And uh, I said, if I do want to get into the automobile business, my uncle has a dealership. So I still have options. But I said, sell it, Dad. And it was such a relief for me. It was such a relief for my dad. (laughs) And that he would would be able to uh, conclude uh, that business. I graduated in 1969 uh, from college and went out to California to... Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ headquarters, and I I went to to study um, how to understand, how to teach the Bible, and uh, their their courses out there. I had been, before graduating, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant um, in field artillery um, by my school, the ROTC, And um, it was the time of conscription, and I figured I would have more choices if I was an officer uh, than if I just went in as a private. I didn't pay attention anyway, but (laughs) I met Colonel Fain out there, a retired Air Force colonel, and he said, we're starting a new kind of staff at Campus Crusade, uh, a military staff. Uh, You don't need to raise support. Uncle Sam will take care of that, but we'll teach you how to start Bible studies. And I said, that's great. So I stayed a little longer. I went into the Army at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to the Field Artillery School. And uh, the war in Vietnam was raging. My grandfather had been um, a student in England in the early 1900s. And uh, Sir William Osler, who was formerly the president of Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School, Um, went to England to gather young men, mostly Oxford students, to and train them to be ambulance drivers. And so my grandfather with that group went to to France and saw horrific scenes in the Great War, the First World War. My father served in the Second World War and had the um, experience of uh, liberating a concentration camp at Gunskirk and... uh, Austria, a part of the Malthusian concentration camps. Uh, he had to deal with the emotions from that for the rest of his life. So uh, for me, military service was something our family did. I um, went to jungle expert school in Panama before going to Vietnam. And uh, other, I had started a, a Bible study at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and got to know a number of the guys. Just about all of us were sent to Vietnam. And and some of them, uh, their names are on the wall. When I got to Vietnam, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, a famous unit. And if you know a little about Second World War history, they and the 82nd Airborne Division were the first units to drop in on D-Day, parachute in at night. Probably my favorite scripture when I was in Vietnam is I, I really leaned on the Lord. Fellowship was rare. Uh, whenever I could have a Christian uh, come out to my unit, I was so encouraged. It was like a cool, fresh water in the desert. <laughs> now you can all be jealous, huh? <laughs> I really leaned on the Lord, and the 91st Psalm was really important. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest or abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge. He is my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because my field artillery uh, battery was split, I was uh, usually either first or second in command. A tremendous amount of responsibility uh, for a young man. Uh, There was a blend of a sense of power and a sense of uh, fear. And I had a a 45 caliber handgun, an M16. I commanded either three or six 155-millimeter howitzers. The most important thing I had was a radio. I could call in Cobra gunships, um, bombers, fighters, or even naval uh, weapons. Um, as, as we had a lot of firepower available to us, there's a, a, a sense of, uh, of power that you have from that, but fear is a reality because you live at risk all the time. Um, the first week that I was assigned to the 101st, even before we were assigned our own uh, weapons, uh, we were hit with a rocket and mortar uh, and ground attack, and they hit the signal for that. And uh, I, the only weapon I had was an early um, birthday present. My dad had given me a buck knife. I took that out, um, and it was... Uh, cold. It was the monsoon. I found some sandbags to sell, uh, uh, to squat down next to in the mud. And uh, what am I going to do with a knife? And um, strange the thoughts that come to you. And I was thinking, I wonder if they give purple hearts for pneumonia. <laughs> and so I, uh, I was in the northern part of, of South Vietnam. Um, and as Gary mentioned, um, just after leaving Vietnam, uh, I started a seminary at, at Dallas. And I s- began seminary with a great sense of curiosity. Um, academic questions from my liberal professor in college, um, emotional questions from my experiences in Vietnam. Uh, although the, the violence and cruelty of war prepared me well for subjects like harmardiology, the study of sin and human nature, uh, anthropology. And, uh, but I, it was a huge transition. I, I remember in Lincoln Hall, the cafeteria on the first floor, um, I went to the cafeteria once and um, I got my tray of food and was walking back to a table And one of the students, not knowing me or completely independent of me, took a little empty half-pint milk container and stomped on it. When it popped, I went down like this. Nothing spilled. I walked over to the table and sat down, and it was silent. An embarrassing silence. Everybody's looking at me. And I told the other guys, listen, if I hadn't reacted like that, I may not be here. And... So that was an, an adaptation to, uh, to civilian life and the, the joy of, of studying and, and not really an opportunity to open up about uh, my experiences because people can't really understand. And in, in Dallas, uh, I went to a wonderful church and I had, uh, I liked girls from Texas but I never found one. I, I thought, that, well, I, wanna, I want the rest of my life to be shared with, with this one. And so when I graduated from seminary, um, my sister and brother-in-law had started uh, Grace. Actually, my brother-in-law had gone to Dallas for a year first before joining the Marine Corps. And um, when he came back, he uh, finished at Grace Seminary. And... <clears throat> Um, when I was in, at Dallas, my top prayer request was to find uh, the right uh, woman to be my life partner. And so they, um, my sister and brother-in-law, invited me to Winona Lake, Indiana, to participate as a pastor and teacher uh, in a church that had just begun there, uh, Bethany Bible Chapel. 
And so I said, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. And they said, by the way, we can't pay you because our, uh, our church members are all students, college or seminary students. And I said, that's fine. Um, I'll get a job. Well, it's hard to find a job because all the students are looking for jobs as well. Um, but actually, I became the chief of security for the 4K Corporation, which I'm spinning because that actually means I was Ranger Smith at Jelly, Jellystone Campground. <laughs> Um, but it was a job, and I was glad to have it. And in the winters, when the people weren't camping, I had a lot of study time. So questions like, how do you know who should be your, your life partner? Um, in the verse, in Paul's prayers, he says, discerning what is best. How do you discern what is best? And what does discerning what is best rather than just good enough or mediocre, how does it translate into character? Remember, knowledge, growing in knowledge is to translate into behavior. And the behavior is to be pure and blameless. So what does that mean, pure and blameless? Uh, pure, it comes from a compound Greek word, Heliocrino, Heleo is the light of the sun. Acrino is to judge. And that might not mean much to you, so let me give you an example. And you may already have heard this. But if a merchant uh, wanted to sell vases, but a vase cracked, but he still doesn't want to just let it, uh, throw it away, so he'll take wax and melt it in the crack to fill the crack in the vase, and then paint over it. But if you're a purchaser and you pick up the vase and you hold it up to the sun, the light will reveal the crack or maybe begin to melt the wax that's there. So to be pure means to be authentic, as represented, to be transparent, is the opposite from hypocrisy. So knowing Christ, growing in Him, a part of that translates into character so that we are pure, we are authentic. I wanted that for myself, and I wanted that in my life partner. Someone, I wanted my wife to be someone who was, I really knew who she was, not just truthful, but emotionally honest. The, the French word, uh, sincere, or sincere, is without wax. And so, a vase um, that is authentic, that is intact, that is as advertised, is a good picture of what we should be as people who are God's pure people. And blameless. Blameless does not mean sinless perfection, which is unachievable as a sinful human being. I think uh, the psalm, Psalm 19, really gives a good uh, description of what being blameless is. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. And when I was in Winona Lake, I met a beautiful young lady who happened to be from Montreal. And um, she was passionate about evangelism. In fact, I heard stories from her friends that when she was working in a hardware store, um, and someone wanted to buy a lamp, she would pick up a lamp and say, this is the lamp, and here's the cord, and here's the plug. If the lamp is not plugged into a power source, it is useless. And if you are not plugged into the life of God, your life does not have value, doesn't have light, and it doesn't have power. That was Sylvia. And uh, so I... Uh, started to go out with her. As I got to know her, um, I realized marriage is a pretty big commitment. I had said, when, um, uh, for you people under 40 or 50, uh, a long time ago, before there were cell phones and, you, and iPads and you could get everything uh, immediately uh, online, uh, 
in Winona Lake, travel films would come to town so people could see interesting places that maybe they would want to visit. And uh, so I had told her when the travel film came to town, I would take her out. And um, she said, great. But when the travel film came to town, um, I invited my sister and brother-in-law and uh, went with them. Sylvia babysat for uh, my sister's uh, little one. Afterwards, I was feeling guilty, and rightly so. So I went, when I went to, uh, back to my sister's home, I offered to give Sylvia a ride back to the campus. And uh, she accepted, and so as I was driving her back to the campus, she said, Tom, pull over, we need to talk. <laughs> so I saw a bank with a well-lit parking lot and pulled into the parking lot. And uh, a Southern boy isn't used to being spoken to like, like that. But she was a Southern Canadian. And so when she, she said, Tom Paul, I'm starting to have feelings for you. I need to know where I stand. Now, by that time, I had reached over and taken her hand. And she said, Tom, when you hold my hand, is that any different from a dog's paw? Now, discerning what is best, at that time I realized this was not the time to tell her how much I liked dogs. <laughs> what I realized is that's exactly what I need. Someone who is honest, who is pure, who is, is as represented, not hypocritical. This is who she is. And she insisted on authenticity in the relationship being honest and self-disclosing. It served her well when she studied at McGill to become a counseling psychologist. She helped a lot of relationships um, through that, her character, and, um, and insisting that others, if, if you don't have truth in a relationship, it's not going to deepen. We then moved to the province of Quebec, after she finished Grace College. And we found a, a wonderful connection there with a couple that uh, we had been praying for when I was at Believer's Chapel in Montreal, the Wallatarsky family. They had committed to starting French-language churches in Quebec and had begun six churches, or we were in the process of beginning six churches. And so Sylvia knew them. So this was an amazing connection for me that we had been praying, I had been praying uh, long before I knew Sylvia for the, a family who had influenced Sylvia and her family uh, in coming to know the Lord. I went to McGill University so my friends would get beyond... <laughs> And uh, after about six months, I was able to uh, preach and teach in, in French. Um, it was an excellent discipline because when, you're, uh, when I was at uh, Bethany uh, Gospel, Bethany Bible Chapel in Winona Lake, um, I didn't have to put the cookies, cookies on a lower shelf uh, because they were seminary students and, and co Bible college students, and I could talk, use theological terms and Greek words and everything. And, and everybody understood. With my few French words, I couldn't do that. And that was a healthy exercise for me. Sylvia and I were blessed with three wonderful children. Um, and uh, uh, they have given us, uh, or me, um, eight grandchildren. Sylvia... Um, was healthy. We would run half marathons together. She was a great cook, uh, cooked not food that was not only tasty but healthy. And um, but later she would uh, develop uh, breast cancer. When we were in uh, Terban, the area where we started a church, there was opposition because of the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. It was not easy for us to, um, to find a place to meet as the Bible study that we had begun grew uh, to 
becoming a church. And so we knew that we would have to uh, find a place where we could build. And we faced some political resistance because of the religious background of the, the people. And we um, also found that it was difficult to purchase property where we needed it. One of the people in our church found that a scheme, a scam, had been going on so that land was sold to physicians and dentists um, in conventions in the United States. So American doctors, uh, my uncle actually bought some land in Quebec in a different location. He was a pediatrician uh, in one of those conventions. But they were selling lands in long, narrow strips that went down to water so they could say waterfront property. But it was too narrow to legally build upon. And so you'd have to have at least two juxtaposed pieces of land to build. And I had found the, the um, names of the owners and wrote them and said, listen, um, we are interested in buying your property. Would you sell to us? And they all wrote back, no, no, we're not interested. Um, and then we saw a piece advertised by someone who lived in Montreal. We went down there, went to a very tall building uh, where there was a man who asked us questions about who we were, um, uh, kind of grilled us. We found out that he only wanted to know so, to understand whether we had the power to compete with him. And then he rolled out his blueprints for his own home in uh, an expensive area, and he said, this is my home that I'm building now. In other words, don't show up at the sheriff's auction when the Americans fail to pay their taxes because I will outbid you at the sheriff's auction. That is what they had been doing for years. And then go down and resell the property at a profit to some American physician or dentist. And I went home. Um, as it was that morning that we went to see that fellow, I had to leave that afternoon for annual training in the military. And Sylvia was in the backyard in a hammock reading a book. She said, Tom, you look so discouraged. And I said, I had so hoped and prayed that we would um, be able to secure land and start to build um, We've made 17 or 18 moves to different places and the congregation is becoming discouraged. And uh, Sylvia said, well, why don't you call those, uh, those property owners again? So I said, so I've written them. I've done everything that I can. And she said, Tom, where is your faith? That is exactly the kind of exhortation every husband or wife needs from the other. Loving, clear, exhortation. Where's your faith? So I said, okay, Sil. I called the, the first guy, a physician, and I told him, I said, listen, uh, I'm in the American military. I'm going down to, um, to annual training, but I, I really, uh, th here's a situation regarding your property. You've gotten letters from me. I said, I, I think there is a scam going on. He said, I, I suspected that. I explained he said, I'll sell you that land. Now we had to buy another one. And so I called the dentist right after that. Same story. I'll sell you that land. And so our contractors and carpenters got together and built uh, a nice building for us right in the middle of this development before it was developed. The epilogue is Sylvia and I went to a shopping center and there we saw this massive um, mock-up of the property. And we whispered to each other, let's pretend we're potential buyers. And go over and ask what's going on. And so the guy was telling us all the advantages of why we should invest here and, and buy property for a condo or something like that. And we said, oh, now this white building looks like a church. What is that there for? And the salesman said, Oh, the developers want to see to the spiritual needs of the investors. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. And we're coming to the end of our time. Um, let me just 
mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, my, my wife uh, developed cancer, uh, breast cancer, and um, she uh, battled it uh, for four and a half years. One of the experiences uh, when we uh, thought that she had gotten past her cancer, the first round of uh, surgery, chemotherapy, and radio radiation, and we thought that uh, we were clear. We had a call. We, by that time, were changing to English churches. We wanted our children. They'd been going to French language school, and um, so we wanted them to have education in English and uh, were, uh, wanted to be, participate in an English language church. And uh, so... Uh, we, we had two churches who called us. Uh, one was a, a young growing church with about 300 people. It was growing and flourishing. Um, and the other was a church that was in Montreal and had shrunk down to 30 or 40 people. And we just put before the Lord um, pros and cons. And as we tried to make the, the right decision to discern what is best, how is God leading? The best answer I can give to that question is God leads effectively. Don't ask how he will do it. He does it by knowing our hearts. Both Sylvia and I came to the conclusion that he wanted us to go to the smaller church in Montreal. In our pros and cons, way down the list, maybe fifth or sixth on the list, was if Sylvia's cancer comes back, um, it will be better to be in Montreal for her medical team. We told both churches our answer was to stay in Montreal, and uh, within about uh, 10 days, Sylvia lost vision in one eye. I took her uh, to see a, an ophthalmologist. The, the timing of, of this uh, uh, was, was critical for both churches and for us because we made our decision before we knew that the cancer had come back. We, and um, so as Sylvia was uh, with the ophthalmologist who was looking down in a scope, it was in a tiny room. I was standing up against the wall. There wasn't room for another seat. The, um, the ophthalmologist went out and brought back a resident. He says, look in the scope. And as she was looking in the scope, he said to her, you see those white spots? That's the metastasis. I said, excuse me? Are you telling us that my wife's cancer has come back? And he looked up as if he was surprised that there were other living people in the room. And I said, please leave. I need to talk with my wife. Now, that was a terrible experience, but good came out of it as Sylvia was invited to speak to physicians and nurses on the subject of communicating bad news to patients. And two months before Sylvia passed away, she was standing in front of an amphitheater and, uh, and talking about her experiences, both positive and negative. About 20 minutes before the end of that class, our friend um, Dr. David Dawson uh, said, let me, uh, I have Mrs. Paul's permission to let you know about her physical condition. He went organ by organ to explain what was going on. She was beautiful. She was composed. She was articulate. She was engaging. And nobody suspected that that was her condition. Two months before she died, at the end of the class, um, and, and he also said, I want her to talk to you about how her faith has made all the difference in dealing with cancer and telling her children goodbye and telling her husband goodbye and preparing a, an album for her daughter uh, and all of these things. The students came forward and just were quiet, no dry eyes and uh, just asked questions. And in, in their evaluations, they said, why in four years of medical school have we not been given the opportunity to talk about spiritual matters? 
What do we say to a patient after we've said you have a lethal disease for which we have no cure? We can treat the pain. Do you walk out and shout good luck over your shoulder as you walk out of the room? What do you say to them? Because now they have a whole new set of questions. What happens in my soul? All of these things. And so a new uh, a class was entered into the curriculum because of their answers. And for the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity to address uh, the medical students at uh, McGill Med School um, very specifically about the faith of, uh, of Christian believers, the certainty of having all of those ultimate questions dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Is he your savior? The text ends up, and I'll, I'll close with this, from Colossians. Do you have a share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light? Have you been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves? Do you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Before Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, he writes this, and this will be my closing prayer. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Father, I thank you for each one here. I pray that if there is anyone who does not know you as his or her Lord and Savior, that they would come to surrender their lives to you, have their ultimate questions, knowledge, know you, and experience your love for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.